who has been born. You are the son to be given, the son who has been given. And to you has been given the throne of David. You are the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And we adore you, our triune God, this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, you are truly a wonder of a counselor, the king who commands and devises all the wonders of our salvation. You are the mighty God, the child, the son, the divine one who would come to rule over this earth. You are everlastingly a father, a protector of your people. You guide and guard us from our enemies and you rule in glory forever. You are the Prince of Peace and have conquered and brought peace and yet will establish peace with great power in your return. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There truly will be no end to the increase of your rule, Lord Jesus, and this government of yours of peace and of justice and of righteousness. You reign in glory from heaven at the right hand of God the Father right now, and you are orchestrating the expansion of your kingdom by the preaching of your gospel by your church. And Lord God, Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with your eternal will and power and might and with all the angelic forces at your disposal, you will with zeal and without delay fulfill all your purposes declared. And so as the scriptures tell us, we pray, come Lord Jesus. And now we ask that you would bless your holy word as we study the announcement of your incarnation, Lord Jesus, when you left your eternal glory of your Father and took on humanity to be the redeemer of humanity, the promised Savior, the promised King. We pray that you would re reveal more of yourself to us this morning as we look into your word. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. You know, as Christians, we know that two of the most important doctrines are the doctrines of the Trinity, that our one God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also know the importance of talking about who Jesus Christ is as fully God and fully man, one person with two natures. And in the training that I have done, and I've told some stories occasionally here overseas, especially in contexts that uh, don't have access to a lot of schooling that we do here, these doctrines are extremely important to understand. They're the foundation of all that we do. Not only are they important to be able to drive off heretics with their heresies, but they're also important to prevent the naive theological wanderer who tries to get all of his or her information just from internet searches. And it's really important, though, ultimately for our own love and our own worship of God in truth, who he really is. And so some thoughts as we consider the incarnation today, we're, no, this isn't Christmas, but, uh, but it's Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be doing the, uh, looking at the announcement, the Annunciation to Mary by Gabriel, and a few th things to consider as we begin. 
First of all, Jesus is fully God. But he is not only God as though he were just seemingly a man. That's what the docetists and those like them would have promoted early on. But we must see the full humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ as well. That he is a fully human being, he has body and soul. Jesus is fully man, but he's not only man, as though he were just sort of infused by a divine spirit or used by God to teach some really good divine things. That's the heresy of adoptionism, and they have a bunch of cousins as well. But we need to see his full divinity, the full divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he came from heaven. That's where he came from. And Jesus is not just some simply a divine being as though he's the maybe the best of the created heavenly divine beings up there. That's what Arianism taught. And they have a lot of cousins too, and a lot of them are still alive these days. But we have to understand that Jesus Christ is fully divine, eternally God the Son. So he's fully God, eternally so, fully man. When he came here, he took on a body and soul. He is one person with two natures. It is a mystery that we will never fully be able to understand with our rational, finite minds. And it's also the basis on which we worship and glorify Jesus Christ and we adore him for who he is as our Savior. So Luke, in our passage this morning, is drawing our attention and presenting to us the Annunciation to Mary of the birth of this holy Christ child. And Luke makes it very clear that Jesus is not the product of the typical pagan myth of the day, where a god might have relations with a woman, a human being, and produce some kind of a demigod offspring. As so many religions at the time would have promoted these types of stories. In fact, there are these stories around today as well. But that Jesus is actually the eternal Son of God who became incarnate, took on humanity. He was born of the Virgin Mary. And Luke wants to lead us to understand that Jesus Christ is the holy, sinless one who is fully God and fully man. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. And we're going to uh, read the story as we go, as it unfolds. Remember, last week we started our series in Luke and we noted his purpose in writing his gospel was to grow our assurance in the things that we've come to understand and to give us a stronger conviction of the gospel. And that's what he's doing this morning. And so we're going to learn this morning that the Davidic Messiah has finally come, but he's not just the Davidic Messiah. He's actually the Holy Son of God. And so Luke takes great joy in, in retelling this story to us. In verses 26 to 33, we see that not only would Jesus be the promised greater son of David that people have been looking for and hoping for, but then in verses 34 to 38, he would also be recognized for who he truly ultimately is as the eternal holy son of God. Actually, the story of Jesus, we noted, really begins with the announcement of the birth of John, John the Baptist, John the preparer for the Lord, and we looked at that last Sunday. And so today we're looking at the announcement of the birth of Jesus, who's the Son of the Most High. Notice a few of the parallels in the stories. Gabriel announces both births. He announces, the angel Gabriel announces the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. The Holy Spirit also plays a critical role in both the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. 
The circumstances of both births are miraculous, both for John and for Jesus. In other words, the whole point is, is if up to this point in the story of Luke, as you've been reading, if you thought the story of John was great, well, the story of Jesus is even greater. And so let's look at this passage together this morning and learn that the Davidic Messiah who has finally come is none other than the eternal Son of God. So we see that Gabriel appears to Mary and then he speaks to her. So he appears in verses 26 and 27 and we read, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Now this is the same angel that was sent from God to bring the good news to Zechariah. So if you look back up in chapter 1 verse 19, you see that Gabriel was there and he announced the good news, the gospel to Zechariah beforehand about the birth of his son John. And the stories of John and Jesus are interwoven so intricately in the beginning chapters of the Gospel of Luke, and we've only noted a few of them. Um, Even notice how, as we begin our passage today in, in verse 26, it says, in the sixth month. Well, whose sixth month? That's Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy. And so it's even intertwined with the story here. And we have to remember, who would John be? He would be this revival leader. He would lead a revival in preparation for the Messiah is actually coming. And so if you look back in chapter 1, verse 14, we read about who John would be. And he says, and the, and, and the angel says to Zechariah, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make many, make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Well, there are also a lot of contrasts between the story of John and the story of Jesus uh, in addition to the many parallels that we see. So, for example, we see that the angel visits an old priest in the first story In the second story, he visits a young virgin. In the first story, he announces the birth in a public place in the temple. In the second story, he announces it in the privacy of a home. In the first story, the the angel appears in the city of Jerusalem. In the second story, he appears in a village of Nazareth. In the first story, it's in the Jewish region of Judea. In the second story, it's the Gentile region of Galilee. And the boys... Their lineages are different. John is from the tribe of Levi, while Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. You see, observing these parallels and these contrasts teach us about the nature of fulfillment, a very, very important word as Christians who believe that the new covenant is the fulfillment of the old. If we go back to the very beginning of Luke, the very first verse You remember it says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been fulfilled among us, and then Luke explains why he's going to explain even more. And those things accomplished among us, that's a legitimate translation. But in the reading of the Gospel of Luke, fulfillment gives it a much richer meaning and understanding of what's really being done as Luke writes his Gospel. So all the parallels that we see between the storylines of John and Jesus, they speak to the continuity, to the, that we're here really hearing one story. 
from the old covenant as it goes into the new covenant. And this fulfillment is really seen as a conclusion, a fitting conclusion to the story that began so long ago. And we'll see that as we go through the Gospel of Luke. At the same time, the contrast that we see between the stories teach us and point out to us that there's something that's going to be radically different because it's a much superior covenant. In fact, it's beyond all expectations. And we'll learn this as we go. But keep those things in mind. So now back to our storyline. We have Mary here, a young woman of probably 12 to 15 years of age, truly a virgin in the understood sense of the term. She's engaged to Joseph, who's probably just a few years older, older uh, rather betrothed, uh, which is a stronger bond. And it's the first stage in that time and culture of a two-stage process of getting married. Uh, they're considered husband and wife, but they don't consummate their marriage until about a year later when he would take her to his home. And so there's an agreement that the families reach, that they reach, a dowry's paid, legal rights get established. And in fact, if, she, if he were to die during this period, she's considered a legitimate widow. And if there's some kind of a dissolution at this point, in this marriage contract, it's considered a divorce. Now, Mary's ancestral roots are debated, as you probably are familiar with to some degree. Is she of the priestly line, or is she of the kingly line, or some kind of a mixture? But Joseph is very clearly of the line of David, and that's the point in the Gospel of Luke. Because it's preparation now for the announcement that's going to come in a moment. This lineage is extremely important in Luke's gospel. In fact, in his introduction that goes on for a few chapters, he mentions it five times, that Jesus is descended from Judah. Here, Zechariah gives a prophecy later on in chapter 1. Then Luke gives some commentary in chapter 2. He brings it up again. The angels at his birth bring it up again. And then when Luke discusses his genealogy, he brings it up again. So even though he's, Jesus is not physically descended from Joseph, he is the full, rightful, legal heir, and that's what's important. And of course, we're already probably surely thinking of the prophecy in Isaiah 7:14, where it talks about a virgin who would give birth. Perhaps Luke was too. Perhaps he knew his readers would too. He doesn't make a serious effort to draw our attention to the fulfillment of this prophecy like Matthew does in his gospel. It shows... Luke has his own purposes. Matthew makes a big deal out of it. Luke stresses on the fact that Jesus is of David's line, so he's the rightful inheritor of the throne, and he's a divine Messiah, better Messiah than most people were expecting. And that's his emphasis, but more on that soon enough. And then Gabriel speaks to Mary in verses 28 and following and says, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel greets Mary in this very personal way. Hail, highly favored one. Even, even he's astounded at being sent to announce this special announcement to her. So should we. God has decided to favor her, perhaps with one of the greatest of all human privileges, to actually bear the divine Messiah. 
And the coming of the Christ was the preoccupation of the angels. And now Gabriel's here and he gets to announce how the redemption of mankind is actually going to take place. And he's astounded as well. And he tells Mary that God would be with her. and It's a promise that he would be with her through all that would be coming. But she's perplexed, of course, just like Zacharias was in the story earlier. Notice that she's not afraid and unbelieving like he was. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. But Mary is just curious about the ways of God. Why such a greeting of blessing? And how is he going to do this with me? She's found favor with God, it says, meaning that God had decided to favor her freely without any request on her part. And the, the idea here, there's no idea that somehow Mary merited this grace although undoubtedly she was a godly woman. Gabriel announces to her that she will bear a son and name him Jesus. It was a popular name at the time, actually. Uh, Matthew tells us what the name means in Matthew 121. It says that she shall bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now, announcing a birth like this automatically communicates. I mean, when an angel appears and announces a birth, that the person who's going to be born is a pretty great person. In fact, Jesus is going to be great in the unqualified sense. But notice this was also mentioned about John back in verse 15. He will be great before the Lord. There's qualification for John, but not for Jesus because he's simply great. And he'll be called the Son of the Most High, the Most High God, rather recognized for who, who he truly is. And he'll be given the throne of his father David to reign over his people and over this kingdom forever. This is really striking language. It's clearly speaking of the promised king who would be the Messiah. And at the same time, it's very clear what Luke is saying. He has a divine nature, which is even more astonishing. The Messiah would not only be the greater son of David, but he would also be the very son of God. The fulfillment to David of this greater son and, and this eternal throne was promised, and it was seen immediately in a foreshadowing in his son Solomon, who was the, had the most glory of all the kings. And yet it was understood that really Solomon was not the one. It was just an indicative, a sign, a promise of what was going to be coming when the Christ would come. Solomon was simply a picture of the glory to come. And that's why Jesus would go around and say things like, Something greater than Solomon is here, speaking about himself. Jesus would inherit the throne and establish the kingdom of God and reign forever as the Davidic king. It's promised in 2 Samuel 7. And then there are many psalms that speak to this. Four of them that you might be interested in checking out on your own sometime are Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, and Psalm 110. 2, 72, 89, and 110. Psalm 110 is perhaps the most important one to focus on because it's the most quoted one in the New Testament. In fact, Luke is going to use it twice in his gospel to talk about who Jesus really is as both the Son of David and the Son of God. Jesus uses it too when his debates with people. Well, in Luke, we're also going to see a few other things because you know, we're still in the introduction here. We're going to learn through the gospel of Luke that the house of Jacob is going to be enlarged. 
way bigger than people expected because it's going to start to include peoples from all the nations. And the people of God is going to expand. And Luke is going to make it clear that this is what the prophets predicted. We're also going to learn that this new kingdom would have no end, and once it started, it would just continue to expand and expand and expand. Nothing would even stop this kingdom, not even things like a crucifixion or persecution. That's part of the plan, actually. It's really the key to the whole thing. And the resurrection shows that it was successful. So Luke will develop this understanding of the kingdom in both its present aspect among us as God's people and also the future aspect in all of its coming glory. So a few passages that you might want to write down or notice, just listen and enjoy them. We read one already, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child has been born, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who has labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus would be the promised greater son of David as Luke is saying at the very beginning. And not only that, but he would be the son of the Most High. So we see in our passage this morning so far that our Lord Jesus, we see, who, see him for who he was, who he is, who he's going to be when he returns. And we're all filled with joy because we belong to the kingdom that he established by grace, by the Holy Spirit working faith in us to put our faith in Jesus Christ and all that he did. In fact, all that's in the rest of this book of Luke, and especially its ending, as it ends with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, our salvation. But also notice something else in the passage so far. Notice that Mary is a picture of those who receive free grace and membership in the kingdom. This is not just a current kind of a observation. It's actually been a standard observation of the church since its very beginning, that Mary stands here as a picture of divine election and of the blessedness of being favored by sovereign grace. If that's a topic that interests you, I would encourage you to start your studies in Ephesians chapter 1 and read the first couple chapters. It opens by saying this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. See, the Davidic Messiah, he's finally come, 
And he is none other than the Holy Son of God. And so next, Luke is going to show us how this is going to take place. And so turn to the next section, verse 34, we see Gabriel's explanation of the process and then Mary's exemplary response to him. He would, Jesus would be the final Davidic king, the fulfillment of it all. There would be no more kings after him. So Gabriel explains, after Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary's question here in verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin, is not a question of disbelief and disobedience like Zechariah's question. So if you just look back into verse 20, Gabriel says to Zechariah, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And then if you look ahead to verse 45, Elizabeth says to Mary, this is Zechariah's wife, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. See, Mary accepts it's going to happen, and she's willing to take on the blessing and all that would come with it. She only wonders how this could come about because she's a virgin. Literally, in the Greek, it says she knows no man. And it's in the present tense to indicate that she never has known a man either. And this isn't some kind of a reference to a vow of perpetual virginity, as some might want to suggest. In fact, Matthew makes it very clear in his gospel that this was only until Jesus' birth, and then Jesus actually ended up through Mary with four brothers and at least two sisters. Big family. So we might wonder at the question, though, Mary's question, because, I mean, she's betrothed. Here comes this announcement. Well, why not just consider the announcement for the near future? I mean, she's going to be married soon enough. Most likely, she would be getting pregnant at that time. So why not just consider something for the next few months? As you can imagine, this is uh, an enjoyment for theologians to speculate over, and there have been many, many suggestions. But remember, we probably just have a condensed account anyway of the conversation. But the traditional understanding is simply that that's what Mary was thinking about, this immediate future. And so how could this be? And Luke is probably bringing it up so that we really would focus again on Isaiah 7:14. The promise is very clear. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Gabriel's answer is very direct, very simple. And you should also notice it's a Trinitarian response. It says the Holy Spirit would come upon her, and the power of the Most High would overshadow her. The result, a holy child most appropriately called the Son of God. In other words, recognized for who he really is. Only now the Son of God is in the flesh. Overshadow here has no sexual overtones. It speaks of God covering with his glorious presence like he existed in the tabernacle. And how he would even speak about being with his people 
And it even points forward to another part of the story that will come up, the transfiguration, when the cloud overshadows Peter, James, and John, and the voice of the Father comes from the cloud saying, this is my beloved Son. Therefore, Jesus is called the Holy Offspring, the Son of God. And holy here might mean set apart for something unique and special, but better yet, here it means pure, perhaps meaning he would be the perfect second Adam. He would be the sinless one. And Luke will bring this out in the genealogy in chapter 3. But then maybe it's really best of all, this is referencing his absolute purity in his deity as the Son of God. The virginal conception here declares to us who Jesus is and who he would be as the holy human Son of God. You know, it didn't have to be done this way. It didn't have to be performed this way for Jesus to be sinless or for it to be the God-man. There certainly were other ways God could have done this naturally, more naturally, or more supernaturally. But the virginal conception is important as a historical fact, and it's important as prophetic fulfillment. Even though it's not necessary for it to be the case, it's for us to understand him to be exactly who he is, fully God, fully man, one person in two natures. The sinless one. And the activity of the Spirit of God prevents, in some way, the imputation of guilt and corruption of human sin. So, you know, many skeptics out there like to make fun of the virgin birth or the virginal conception more specifically, thinking that somehow it's impossible to believe. But, you know, if you believe in the incarnation itself, that one shouldn't be that hard to go along with it. Or the fact if you even believe in God, for nothing's impossible with him. The sign that Gabriel gives to Mary, and notice that she doesn't even ask for a sign like Zacharias did, but the sign for her is Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth's miracle is that she would conceive and give birth in her barrenness and in her old age. Mary's miracle is even greater. Her conception and her birth would be done without human sexual relations even. Elizabeth's current pregnancy is proof signifying that truly nothing is impossible with God. Again, this should all remind us of the words in Genesis 18 when Abraham and Sarah were talking and in talking about the birth of Isaac, the angel speaks and the Lord says, the Lord said, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's the beginning of a new stage in the history of redemption. Well, that's exactly what this is. It's Luke, it means to remind us of that. These new promises now in this new age that is dawning, nothing is impossible for God. Not the Messiah coming in the way he did. It's not even, I mean, God's going to do one of the most amazing things. He's going to save us from our sins. No one's been able to do that up to this point in the history of the whole world to save us from our sins. And in Mary's exemplary response, we read in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary places herself underneath as the Lord's servant. And she would remain this way her whole day, all her days. There's no mention of the shame to endure, the risk to take for the will of God to be done in and through her. She's at God's disposal, whatever he pleases. How about us? You know, again, Mary has always been one of the foremost models to the church of true discipleship. 
That is the historic understanding of the church. Mary is a model, one of the best models of discipleship. She was faithful from the very first to the very last. She's the only one who was there from the Annunciation all the way through the cross. Jesus would be recognized as the greater son of David, who is also the eternal holy son of God. Yeah, he would be a man just like us, but yet he would be our Lord. Nothing is impossible with God. After the incarnation, we think about the incarnation, well, nothing is impossible with God, and here's the incarnation. It should make us think about our salvation that this one would accomplish. And you can read that in the rest of the Gospel of Luke, especially toward the end of the book, because we see as human beings, we are so sinful. I mean, at the very core of our being, we are sinful people. And it shows itself in all of our actions, our words, our attitudes. It comes out constantly. It's even there as an underlying current in the good that we see people do. Evil is right underneath. We are truly dead in our sins, as the scriptures say, and and we stand under the ready, righteous wrath of God and all of his holiness. But God could save, and he would save by the sacrifice of his son on the cross. Jesus is the perfect mediator now, you see, as the God-man who would take our place and truly satisfy divine justice. The Apostle Peter would write later in 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. And we who trust in him alone for our salvation from sin truly have justification before God and truly have eternal glory. You know, Luke, again, desires his purpose in writing that came out in his very first introductory paragraph is that our assurance would grow, that we would believe all the more truly the things that we've been taught about the gospel, and so he's going to go over them all again. And that our conviction would grow, that we'd be even more committed, that our faith would actually increase in this Jesus. And so he presents to us today the Davidic Messiah who is more than was expected. The Davidic Messiah who would be the Holy Son of God. And as we meditate on that and this passage of Scripture that God has given to us as his church, our faith in Jesus will grow. There's a couple other things that Luke is accomplishing at the same time here you've probably noticed. First of all, Luke has led us into greater discipleship. That just simply means following Jesus. And Mary is a model here. In fact, discipleship is a theme in the gospel according to Luke. If you want to learn how to follow Jesus, wondering what that really means, read the gospel of Luke. He'll explain it to you. Well, Mary is a model, a model of wonder at God, his greatness, and what he will do. She's a model of faith, a model of holiness, a model of servanthood, Model of simply receiving God's grace. We should reflect upon our own lives and how we struggle to be like her or or at least how we grow in grace because God is at work in our lives. We want to be able to just take God at his word. Like she did. Not like Zechariah sort of did, but like she did. We want to be able to give ourselves up completely to his will in our lives. And we want to be blessed by simply pondering 
the grace of God in our lives and take time to do that. Well, second of all, not only does Luke also accomplish this purpose of starting to teach us about what it means to be a, a good, faithful follower and disciple of Jesus, but he's also led us into a greater joy in what our salvation is really all about. Because he shows us who Jesus is. Right up front, in the beginning of the gospel, it's all here. So what we learned about Jesus today is we learned that Jesus is the eternal son of God. We learned that Jesus is the greater son of David. We learned that Jesus has a people and a kingdom and that he's reigning now and he will reign forever. We've learned that Jesus is the only truly holy one. He is the only sinless man. We've learned that Jesus is truly superior to all others for salvation, for the whole world's full and real salvation. And we will see how this gets accomplished in his crucifixion and his resurrection later in the book. Well, I think it's most appropriate that today ends up being also the first Sunday of the month, and it's our practice, our custom here at Calvary Evangelical Free Church to celebrate the Lord's Supper. What a wonderful time to do that. After studying the announcement of Jesus' birth and who he would really be. So take some time this morning to think further upon this message and some of the things that the Word of God has brought to your mind this morning. And we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So on your pews, you have a little cup, and it has a wafer on top, and it has some juice in the bottom. So find that, and I'll be...